Greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. And as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces, Racetrack, and Casino. And we are on episode 149. And tonight's kind of a big one. Uh, we have an opportunity to speak with Daniel Negranu, uh, who's pretty famous uh, for those of us who are in the poker community. Uh, he's been around for quite a while, had a lot of success, uh, very engaging, uh, very approachable, and somebody who's been a real champion of the game. So very excited about that. Uh, we'll be following the usual format where we have our panelists who are able to ask questions. And we've also invited anybody who is a Rec Poker community member uh, to join in, uh, to listen in live, to uh, see the video, to watch the interview, and to submit questions and, uh, and provide feedback via chat uh, during the recording. So we're very excited to provide that opportunity. Uh, that's something we provide to all of our interviews, to all of our Rec Poker community members. Uh, and if you want to find out more about becoming a community member, just go to rec.poker. All the information about membership is out there. We really are a vibrant and encouraging poker learning community uh, with the emphasis on community. So uh, check that out if you want. A couple of quick high-level announcements. Uh, as Running Aces is our official sponsor, we always share the players of the week from each week. And this week, uh, Andrew Feist, who is part of Rec Poker Nation, and Clint Lighthizer, uh, tied for player of the week, followed by Tez Turnadzik and Daryl Windingstad. So congratulations to those guys who pick up some bonus tournament lammers for their player of the week. Also, a quick update on the NFL Survivor Pool. Only 23 people remaining. Last week was pretty rough. Uh, including myself as Tampa Bay beat the Rams, uh, ending my run uh, in the survivor pool. And a few things we have coming up besides the interview with Daniel tonight. On October 2nd, we have a couple of things. Uh, we're going to be doing some hand history with Chris Jones facilitating. We'll be looking at playing small pairs uh, early in middle position. And then that night at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time, we're doing our second monthly online tournament, our Poker Stars tournament. Uh, you can get all the information at rec.poker slash home games. Jump in there. Uh, we're giving away three copies of Andrew Brokus's Play Optimal Poker to the top three places. So check that out. Join in. It's a great, it's a great time. Uh, and bragging rights, of course, on the line. October 7th, we'll be interviewing Ryan LaPlante, 6.30 p.m. Central Time. October 9th, we have a few things going on. Uh, from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Central Time, I'm going to be just hosting some open hours, some open discussion time for any beginning, uh, less experienced players for whatever questions you have, whether that's how do I play in the casino to any sort of poker math question, strategy question, whatever it is, geared more toward the beginning players. So if you are a member of the Rec Poker community and you want to jump in there from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Central Time, uh, the link is out there. So jump in. We'll just chat and kind of hang out there. And then later that night at 6.30, we're doing our third session of our book study. We are studying Andrew Brokus's Play Optimal Poker. Uh, we'll be covering Chapter 3. So if you're a member, check that out. And all of these things we record and then make available back to the membership. So if you can't make it, you can still watch it as a member. And then at 8 o'clock that night, we're doing more hand histories, this time led by Taylor Moss. And then the last thing I want to mention is October 10th, we're doing our community kickoff. It's just an online video chat. Uh, for whoever is out there, uh, especially for those who can't do our in-person meet and greets locally here in Minnesota, it's just an online get-to-know-everybody hangout uh, session on October 10th. So all of the details, all of the dates, all of the links are out on our membership site. 
You can get to that through rec.poker and you can get a free one month trial. If you just want to check it out, see what's out there, go to rec.poker, uh, sign up for membership. It's a free one month trial and then you can cancel if it's not what you're looking for. But generally you can just stay plugged in, uh, get on our email newsletter. Uh, we don't give away the emails. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, try to keep everything updated. The email is probably the best way. Uh, but I also post our weekly email newsletters out on our website too. So plenty of ways to check in there. So enough of the announcements. Let's get to the conversation that we recorded with Daniel Negranu. All right, everybody, as promised, we are here with Daniel Negranu. Daniel is out there currently walking his dogs, I believe, Daniel. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for jumping on here. Yeah, can we get a shot of the dogs? He just peed on a bush. Good boy. <laughs> But but thanks for ta- thanks for taking the time, Daniel. So you're just kind of walking around Vegas, or what do you got going on? I'm just uh, just about to get back to the house. I got back last night from Toronto. It was a quick trip. I go do my uh, annual fantasy hockey draft with the same group of guys. Year 23 we're on right now. So fly back just for that. It's a lot of fun. Now, are you pretty successful in that, or how, what's your run been like? Well, I mean, like I said, there's been 23 years. One guy has had a dynasty. He's won eight times out of 20 teams. And I'm second place with three titles, so quite a quite a spread there. And I'm going to rebuild, but the team's getting better, baby. I'm excited. <laughs> it, it seems like you always have a hard time getting passionate about things that you do. <laughs> you know, that's been an issue. I've been told, you know, a little more passion. That's what I. That's what I'm always told. You know, show some emotion. Right. Well, that's good. It's good that as you get older, you can kind of keep working on something. So that's good for you. Well, but speaking of that, like kind of. Just catch us up a little bit on life. You haven't been on the show before. We appreciate you coming on. But just, you know, what's going on in your world real quickly? I know uh, married life. We've got the master, the master class. Kind of give us a, a snapshot of how life is for Daniel Negreanu right now. Well, you hit on a couple there, of course. Master class was um, beyond successful. Like, they couldn't believe it. You know, master class is connected to some of the top celebrities in the world teaching their craft. And uh, the master class of poker they were blown away by the response. So that's why you saw a second with Phil Ivey and who knows, they'll continue to work on there. So that was a real, real good um, opportunity for poker to go mainstream as well, because it has a very mainstream appeal. Like people come to learn tennis with Serena Williams and they leave for the poker with Daniel Negreanu. Aside from that, as you mentioned, married life just got finished with um, putting together the world series of poker Europe package for The fans, and that went off without a hitch. So very thankful there. It sold out pretty quickly. Um, but now I'm just gearing up. I have a speech to do on October 8th for a tech company. Um, and then uh, off to Rosvidov it is. Wow. So just, just one or two things going on. Yeah. And I got something else real big going on, but that's, uh, that's Ooh, not under public wraps. yet. You, you don't yeah. want to break the news here? The Rec Poker yeah. Podcast? You want to break it right here? <laughs> we'll, we'll break the news when, when I see the dotted lines are signed. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. That sounds good. Well, well, thanks for coming on. And I think, you know, we, we connected a little bit over Twitter just because uh, under a little bit of, you know, controversy, not really, but, you know, you were going to do this big 32-person uh, bracket and you're going to say, you know, one podcaster versus another podcaster. And, you know, we, we had chatted about that because uh, I just appreciated the fact that we were even in the radar. You know, it brought awareness to our podcast and you had people getting upset with you about, you know, you're going to make people feel bad and that sort of thing. So we, we talked a little bit about that. And, you know, my stance was, hey, you know, we, we probably expect to get blown out. But I, I had asked you if we won our first round matchup, could you would you come on the show? And you agreed to come on anyway. So 
I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about some of these brackets and polls that you've been doing, but a lot of them are pretty interesting. Yeah, so you were probably going to be in trouble in round one because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was semi-seated, you know, so you're probably going to go up against one of the big guns. It might have looked ugly, but I knew I could tell based on your vibe that you're one of those people that can take it without crying, right? Right, so, right. So, you know, which is, uh, which is really fascinating to see sort of the response to that. You had one camp who's like, this is cool. I really enjoy this. Let's pit these guys, see how they do. But then I did one, which was pitting Nick Schulman, who I had the one seed, and against Jeff Gross, who I knew was he could take it, you know? Right. And uh, obviously the polls were heavily in favor of Nick, and that's when everybody started to attack me, as if I'm this immoral, mean person, because I put Jeff up there. And I say to myself, listen, Jeff's a big boy. If you choose to, you know, to enter the sort of entertainment industry, you're essentially giving, you know, you're not a plumber. This isn't, you know, you know you're, you're somebody who's like actively being in the public eye. Well, it's kind of fun in, in a lot of ways to pit everybody together. It took enough bash, backlash from, I guess I would call it a newish culture of sort of millennialness, which is to not hurt anyone's feelings or, or yeah. do that. And it's the opposite of the way that I want to raise my kids. Like they will, if they come home with a participation trophy, that's going to get launched over the roof. There's no fifth place trophy. We don't No. If you listen, I'll be, if you do your best, I'll love you. I'll treat, you know, we'll be great. But like, you're not going to get rewarded for sucking at something. It's not how this works. <laughs> Very good. Well, it was, it was going to be fun. I was looking forward to it, but it was just fun to be mentioned. And I appreciate, you know, the shout out on your podcast and that sort of thing. And, you know, telling the guys here, we could spend this whole time just, talking about how much we love you and how much impact you've had on the game and that sort of thing. And you've heard enough of that, but just know that we all appreciate all you've done for poker, especially for the recreational players who are still doing this as a hobby, trying to have fun with it, trying to get better. Uh, so, you know, just thank you in collective uh, sort of fashion for all of that. But one of the things I wanted to quick touch on with you is, uh, is, is one of the things that we're doing here is really focusing on, learning poker in community. So obviously you can learn a kind of all kinds of stuff just by yourself and reading books and watching videos. But you know, our stance is you can really learn a lot and you build a lot of great relationships by being able to wrestle with stuff back and forth and, you know, looking at different perspectives and that sort of thing. So I'd love quickly kind of your, your take on that. If that's been part of your history of learning the game, or if you're sort of a champion of that approach. Well, let me first and foremost say you guys are doing it absolutely right. You know, I would not be where I'm at if I was if I didn't have a group of people that I could bounce ideas back and forth with. My group, you know, we all were new to the game. It was me, a guy named John Jawanda, another one named Alan Cunningham, and this other guy named Phil Ivy. You know, Ooh. the four of us were for Phil Ivy. You know, used to play poker. Yeah. Okay. So the four of us, we would bounce ideas, and it was actually kind of interesting because you know Phil would always have the gambling idea, right? Uh, which I was more on the side. And then, you know, John Jawanda would be like, well, what happened in the hand? And he always like was results oriented. And then Alan just told us the right answer because he had <laughs> it, right? He just knew the right answers. So it was good because we all had different ways of approaching the game. And uh, it's super important to do that. Like you might play poker. Let's say you play poker five, six years. You play your game. And you're like, oh, you know, a six of hearts under the gun. This is a fold for me. But then, you know, maybe if you hear some other people, you know what? In the game you were in, lots of tight players, you had a big stack, you should have played that hand. And it's something that you may not think of because we all get to a point sometimes where we just kind of go through the motions of like what we know, but it takes someone around you to challenge that and go, well, are you sure that's right, right? Like I've been doing things for 20 years. Well, am I sure it's right? And then I had to take a deeper look and go, huh, maybe it's not right anymore. Maybe it was right when I right. did it before, but maybe I need to make an adjustment there. So 
having a support group like that is, and it just, it opens you up to stuff. Like sometimes you might be thinking on the turn, I don't know if I should have uh, check called or check folded here. And someone else goes, did you think about check raise? <laughs> and you're like, Boom, light bulb, right? <laughs> is that something that's still part of your, I mean, obviously you've reached the, you know, the pinnacle of poker, if, if there is such a thing as, as pinnacle of poker, you know, is that something that's still part of your learning is having a community or have you kind of moved past that now with all the stuff that you have going on with the business? Well, you know, now what I've done for the most part is because I get to play, you know, at the highest levels. And frankly, all of you guys get to watch this. So you can digest the same information I do. I pick up on things here and there, like, that are, you know, sort of new thoughts. Like, for example, you know, about when they started with the big blind Annie, I noticed guys on the river, instead of betting, you know, 600K all in, they bet 599 and left themselves one chip. That seemed dumb. I was like, what the hell is that? Then I understood it. More recently, a better example, um, in deep in a tournament, I saw Stephen Chidwick. He had 17 big blinds, okay? He raised to 10 big blinds. Weird, right? Why would you do that? Like, doesn't make any sense. But then, you know, he had like, he had two sevens. So then he basically explained it and he probably shouldn't have, but it's like, if it goes all in and all in behind him, he could actually fold the sevens. So he's basically all in, but not really all in. So, you know, little corners you can cut, little moves like, um, you know, the people are using. I take advantage of that, but the good news is so, so can you guys. I just have a closer look at it because I'm at the table often. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, any, any questions from the panelists at this point or should I keep firing away? Chris Jones. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to follow up on that because, I don't know, it was about a year or so ago, you kind of came out publicly and said that you wanted to rededicate yourself to the game, that you felt like some of the best players in the world had sort of had surpassed you to a certain degree. And I'm wondering um, about that sort of self-realization and how you went about it, because I think as poker players, it's sometimes hard to understand whether... I need to work on something or it's just variance. I'm just having a run of bad luck. And like, how, how as a player do you sort of uh, work at like identifying the spots where I need some work and uh, well, I'm just running into some bad, bad cards here. That's a really great question. Like an absolutely fantastic question. Cause I'm a per personal believer that the number one poker skill required to be really good is self-awareness, right? So being able to distinguish the difference between, have I been unlucky or am I getting outplayed? And for me, uh, about two years ago during the Poker Masters one fall, uh, you know, I went in there with pretty high hopes and uh, there was a couple hands. I played against Stefan Sondheimer and one against uh, Stefan Schilhabel and I just jotted the hands down and went, man, I just, I got outplayed. You know, that was not luck. I got outplayed in those key hands. Now, obviously luck does play a role, but when you can pinpoint a few things where you feel like, you know, they're doing things that you're not or they have some sort of insight into your game where they should call you in this spot. Like you guys watch rounders where uh, KGB says should have paid me off on that right. hand right. up to monster lay down. Right. So in that spot, KGB just realized he got outplayed. Right. Um, and it was obviously the Oreo cookies, but it's usually not as simple as Oreo cookies. So for me, I've always been self-aware enough to sort of get a gauge of where I stand how much resistance I'm getting from different players. As you're learning, it's more difficult. I'm going to warn you. So if you're new to the game, tough to discern the difference because sometimes you'll end up being results-oriented, right? Where, ah, oh, man, I had ace-king. I should have bet the turn. Why? Because he got there. Not right. because it's the right play, but because, oh, if I bet the turn, he wouldn't have caught that card. That doesn't mean it's the right play. So you really have to find a way to get your mind away from results-oriented thinking, you know, breaking down the hand, the different ways you can think about it. Um, and just, and just taking the results out of it, which is difficult, but you get better with it with time, I would hope. 
That's great. John Somsky, did you have anything? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, we do a, a monthly kind of topic that we uh, work on. This month's topic is we're working on how to play small and middle pairs from early to middle position. Any particular, I, I know that's a big thing, like <laughs> it's almost as bad as how do you play East King, but <laughs> any particular uh, words of wisdom? Yeah, so or, I got a couple, can I ask a couple questions in, re, in response to that? Absolutely. Okay, so is this for cash games or for tournaments? Primarily tournaments. All right, because there's, and so typically you're talking about depending on stack size, like early, middle, or late. I can break them down in all, uh, into all three if that, make, if that helps. Uh, yeah, I would, I would assume for, with like the, yeah, yeah, early, middle, or late. All right, so like how to play pocket pairs in your early position is 100% uh, dependent upon stack size. Okay, it really is. There's a lot of like, uh, you know, once you get shorter, you know, it really changes the dynamic. There are certain situations where you get two deuces and you just go all in under the gun, right? Well, when would that be? So you can use some of the software to show you, you know, when you're under 20 big blinds, when you should be jamming. And in tournaments, when you get to that stage with small pairs, that's probably the play. You don't really want to come in for min raises and have to fold to re-raises. Limping in that stage is probably not advisable. Now, limping is making a comeback. Okay. It is actually making a comeback. Some solvers have done some work. So I don't hate if you're depending on the tournament that you're in, right? If you're playing with a bunch of wrecks, right? From wreck poker, <laughs> then, um, you know, if a lot of people are limping in to see flops or whatever, and you pick up two threes, two fours, two deuces, and you're like a hundred blind, big blinds deep or something like that, you know, you might be better off just limping in there. Right. Especially if you're in a spot where you know, the big blind is going to defend anyway. Well, now you're basically just making the pot bigger, um, and a lot, and most of the time in a multi-way pot, if you don't hit your set, you're done anyways. So you can get into some cheap flops. Now that was written in super system in the late seventies by Doyle Brunson, right? So you'd think, you know, just like, uh, what do you call it? Bell bottom pants. Everything has, a, everything <laughs> comes back at some point. Right. So limping is okay. I still don't advise it because, you know, unless you're really balancing your range there by limping with aces and Kings, some decent players will exploit the crap out of that. Okay. Cause they'll just know you're not strong enough. So Typically, you know, I, would, I wouldn't fold them. I would go ahead and raise, especially in tournaments. Um, if it's nine-handed and it's early in the tournament and you've got some tough players at your table that are three-betting, whatever, you know, you can get away with folding them. But in tournaments especially, I really like those kind of hands because they're what I, they go under the category of, okay, small loss versus big potential gain, right? Because when you have two threes, like how often do you get crushed on a really big pot, right? Well, when would that happen? That would only happen if you flop a set and lose, okay? That's not going to happen very often. When you do flop a set, you're usually going to win the pot. So your risk is extremely minimal, you know, like two big blinds or whatever, two and a half bigs that you're raising, but your payoffs are really, really good. I prefer hands like that in early stages than hands like ace-queen, right? So ace-queen, how do you make a lot of money with ace-queen from early position? What flop has to come other than exactly king-jack-ten or ace-ace-queen? Right. Every other flop is scary. Every one, right? They're all dangerous and scary. So... um, so those are what I call bust them hands. And in the early stages, you go ahead and play them. Uh, as you start to get to like, you know, maybe like 17, 18 bigs. And again, you can use software to, you know, to determine this. There's probably a range there where you should be folding them. I think it's between 15 and 22 bigs, which in a lot of small tournaments, you're going to find yourself in that spot a decent amount, I would think. All right, good stuff. Steve Olson. Oh, Steve, you're muted. I'm going to unmute you here. Steve, will go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep. All right, perfect. Um, 
you know, hi, Daniel. How's the it going, question, My big question that I had and was kind of touched on earlier, but, you know, when a couple of years ago when Fedora goes on his big run, and then Bonmo goes on a big run after that, and then, like, you know, then you buckle down and, and kind of, I don't know if I would say remake your game, but could you kind of talk us through, like, because first, right, you got to look at yourself and say, I need to improve here, 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 and here. And then you got to go about doing it. Can you take us through some of the things that you did to, to you know, to, to kind of get back on top? Not that you were, were, were ever really off the top, but. Um, yeah, so. What, you know what I, I like the first, Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I did was identify, like, what am I missing, right? Um, and I knew that, you know, the part of my game that was missing was understanding solvers and understanding combinations and, you know, sort of the new game theory optimal play. So I'm not an expert on it. So I went to two guys that are, one was a computer scientist. The other one was a player who employed a lot of these strategies on game theory. So I hired them and I worked with them for about three, four months, um, really hard. And the results were fantastic. And some of the things we worked on basically was this learning. What is the GTO baseline in certain situations? and then deviating. So I'm going to give you an example. We'll work on one, right? What do you think if you raise under the gun? Okay. Say two and a half blinds and you have ace king. Okay. And the button calls you. All right. So it's heads up. You raise under the gun, the button calls nine handed. The flop is 10, five deuce. Okay. What do you think like the GTO baseline, like what, a, you know, the absolute unexploitable betting percentage would be there? Like how often should you bet in that spot? What percentage? Well, I'd probably 50%. Bingo. Oh, my God. That's really good. It's 52%. So 50 is close enough, right? Because we're human. We're not computers. And so we know 50%. So there's ways you can do that. So if you're going to play a GTO style in that spot, because you know now it's 50%, you could flip a coin in your head. You could look at the clock and say, oh, it's even number I'm betting. If it's odd, I'm checking. That's the way to be unexploitable if you do that. Now, what I, well, then what we worked on was first learning what are the baselines in, in a lot of situations, then going, okay, but this guy who called on the button, I know him, right? Right. He's very sticky. He doesn't fold on the flop enough. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to lower 50% down to 25% to exploit that player. Or maybe it's a player who just folds way too often on the flop. So now against this player, I'm going to bet 75 maybe 100% of the time. So you see, what we worked on was – Learning what is the correct play if you were playing against the perfect computer, right? If I was playing against Labradus or whatever, what is the perfect move? Now adjusting it to who I'm playing. Am I playing against Fedor Holtz or am I playing against, you know, Mike Mattiso? Sure. I'm going to come up with some strategies against those two guys. Cool. All right. Thank you. You got it. Andrew Feist, anything? Uh, yeah. Hey, Daniel. I uh, just wanted to say thank you for uh, giving us a chance to sweat you. My wife and I uh, got to sweat you over the summer, too, so that was a lot of fun. Um, but also, talking about a lot of solvers and all that kind of stuff, um, a lot of training is all geared towards deeper stack poker multi-day events. You know, with rec poker players, we usually only play shorter events with 20-minute levels that last four to five hours. What do you think the biggest adjustments would be to to those to our game in those kind of tournaments? and actually saw great results. I used to really kind of suck at turbos. And the reason was I was seeing too many flops. I was too loose in terms of like calling raises. Somebody raises, I, you know, queen jack suited. Of course I want to play that hand. But in turbos, there's so much shoving going on around you that like you kind of don't, you can't really get away with seeing as many flops. My forte 
my skill set is best suited for seeing a lot of flops. So it forced me to play a lot tighter. Okay. So you're not like just speculating as often. And the other thing you're doing is you're going all in more. Okay. Uh, biggest mistake you can make is, you know, uh, raise folding too much where you're coming in for a raise and then folding to a shove. Like you have to sort of work out. I mean, there's like, again, there's programs you can use that will help you like just knowing what correct shove ranges are. So it's kind of important to know, all right, everyone folds me in a small blind. I got 10 big blinds. Well, what's a shove? What's not? Like, would you shove there with King three offsuit? You hear me? Oh. Yep. Sorry. I was muted. Um, oh, no, it's okay. yeah, I shove? guess probably with 10 dig blinds, probably in that spot. Yeah. All right. What if you had like uh 10, five of spades? Probably again, but <laughs> I've been watching a lot of your stuff too. So I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, the good news is there's actually a correct and a, an incorrecting answer to all these questions, right? So you can actually, you know, get one of those equilibrium solvers and just learn that stuff because it's better. It's easier to know instead of being like in a spot and go, duh, I don't know what to do. Well, you can just study those spots, right? So now here's the reverse question. Somebody moves all in in the small blind for 10 big blinds and you're in the big blind. What's the worst hand you'd call with? Jeez, I don't even know. Ah, That's that's a big one. See? It's kind of important though, isn't it? Yeah. Because how often if you're playing the tournaments that you're playing, do you find yourself in that spot? And if you don't know the answer, you're just always guessing and you can learn it. You can train with it. Snapshove is an app that you can use to just like, do trainings like that. So they come up with random questions like that. Then they give you the answer right, right away. Good stuff. Good stuff, Daniel. Rob, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's King four because that's how I went out of the tournament yesterday. <laughs> I think Way to be results oriented, Rob. It was King four suited. It was, it was King four suited. I called. He had ace three, took me out. Um, King four, you made the right move. Thank you. I'm, I appreciate hearing that from you. Definitely. Say, when you were outside walking the dogs, you were talking about how you don't use the software. You don't know how to even turn on the computer. Um, so, but then you're talking about apps and things like that. So what do you generally use when you're doing your individual training? Well, I learned how to use the computer stuff, but basically I just ask them the questions and then they give me the solve. So if you haven't used the solver, or don't know how they work, they're pretty complicated but essentially what they do is like you put in a situation that you're in and it'll tell you because you know most poker questions are not as simple as do this or this it's based on frequency it's like okay do this 70 percent of the time do this 28 percent of the time or something along those lines so the solver will tell you the right frequency like how often you should be doing something then it shows you the correct hands to do it with based on blockers and stuff like that so because i'm not computer savvy and whatnot I just uh, ask my friends to run it and they do that. But um, as far as like the other stuff, you know, using, I, you, I've done the trainings on, you know, Snapshove and stuff like that just to play. I mean, me and Amanda do it. She, she enjoys it. You know, we're okay. You know, you just look at the question. Okay. You're on the button with eight big blinds and you have queen four offsuit. What do you do? You know, and then you play shelver or fold because that's obviously one of the two. And then you can see what the correct range is. So the more you do that, you know, the better practiced you are. And when you're in those situations, again, it's just like, you watch these guys sometimes, they like insta-call with like queen five offsuit and then they insta-fold with queen four because they know already that queen five is a call and queen four is a fold. Not many do, but if you don't study it, you never will. So that's what I use uh, for turbos and things like that in the late stages. Cool. 
All right. Uh, waiting for more questions from the from the crew. But, but Daniel, let me let me ask you this a little bit. Um, just as you're talking a little bit about the optimal solutions GTO, we've been talking a little bit about that. We're actually studying Andrew Brokus's book, Play Optimal Poker, which is a seems like an attempt to try to make GTO accessible to us recreational players. Uh, I'm curious your perspective on uh, or, or your message, I guess, to recreational players. Uh, which I know that's sort of a vague term. It varies from we have we have people following the podcast who are playing home home games and bar leagues only all the way through to people regularly playing eleven hundreds up to you know three thousand or whatever. Uh, so it's a wide range. But what is sort of the message for more of the hobbyist recreational player around GTO? Especially you know those that are they're trying to get better, but they see GTO, it becomes intimidating. They can spend all these hours and energies trying to figure that out. You know I know we've talked a little bit about maybe it's just a baseline, but you really should be exploitative. You know, what's sort of your message around GTO for the recreational player? All right, so I have a very strong opinion on this, okay? Unless you plan on playing with Steve Chidwick and Bryn Kenny and uh, all the rest in the 25K buy-in or 100K buy-ins or whatever, don't even bother worrying about game theory because the, what game theory is necessary for is when you're playing against really, really good players who exploit you. I imagine most of you playing in bar leagues or whatever are not playing against a bunch of, like, GTO robots, right? You're playing against people. So you're going to be much better off, you know, looking to be explo- exploitive. And what that means is, well, we can get into that. But I want to give you an example, right? So let's say we see this guy and we're playing, you know, Rochambeau, rock, paper, scissors. Yep. All right. We just talked about this. Yeah. Okay. So um, we'll go down this, this uh, yeah. alley. It's interesting. So now, you know, what is, if I want to play GTO, the right percentage to throw is one third, one third, one third. But guess what? Right. If I do that. No matter what he does, I'm going to break even, okay? And so is he, yep. Yeah, he's, you're going to totally break even. Right. Now, he, this is a better, I use this one a lot, but now what if you know that the player is throwing rock 100% of the time? What do you do now? Paper. How often? 100%. You think? If he's throwing rock 100%? Yeah. Only yes. if he never learns. Until, assuming he never well, learns, until he learns. See, what you're going to do then, right? So he's exploitable because he's throwing raw rock every time. Well, now what do you think he's going to do when you throw paper 10 times in a row? He's going to go, huh, this guy throws paper every time I'm going to throw scissors. So the better approach is to just, instead of doing 33% rock, you do it 40% or 45%. You beat the guy every time and he thinks he's unlucky, right? He's like, oh my God, you're so lucky. How do you always win? <laughs> because what you're doing is, it's like that old theory Amarillo Slim said, something about you can shear a sheep many times, you can skin him only once. So this is an approach where you can shear them. So when you are making deviations from GTO or from game theory, you don't want everyone to know you're doing it, right? So let's say you know your buddy in the game. He just never bluffs on the river, right? So every time he bets the river, you just fold, okay? If he knew that or anyone else knew that, he could, he could start crushing you, right? Right. Because he has that information about you. So you, you always want people to have the illusion that you're balanced, right? That like, well, just because he checked here doesn't mean he has nothing. You know, he sometimes has something. You always want to be in spots where people look at you and go, well, he might have this, but he doesn't have to. You never want to be the guy where like, oh, he check raised the flop. He always has a set here. If you are that guy, you're exploitable and you're deviating way too far. So don't worry about GTO as much. Look for patterns in your opponent's behavior that are mistakes and try to exploit them. The simplest way to describe that is if your opponents are too tight, raise and bluff them more. If they're too loose, crazy, and call too much, just tone it down against them and just nut pedal them. <laughs> Chris Jones. 
Yeah, I want to go back to that Oreo cookie you mentioned. Um, one of the things you're sort of most famous for, I think, is the ability to sort of get live tells and live reads on your opponents. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, if you had any advice for people who just are starting to try to figure out, uh, you know, how to approach live reads and understanding that they're not going to be as simple as the Oreo cookie moment. You got, okay. So yeah, absolutely. You got to pay attention. I mean, really pay attention. So if you bring your phone and you're bringing your book to a poker table and you're not watching the hands, you're going to miss out on anything. Could be very, very valuable later in the future. Now tells are different for every person, right? So what you're looking for is something different, something abnormal, something unique. Then what you want to do is, is hopefully if it goes to a showdown, you get a chance to see those cards. So I remember, I'll give an extreme example. I was in world series Europe about 10 years ago and there was a guy I was watching, paying attention. And, uh, there's a hand where he made big bet on the river. He was chewing gum, right? Well, he made this big bet. He stopped chewing gum, all right? So, okay. I just I, I pocketed that. It doesn't mean anything yet, right? Because you need to have some sort of, uh, you know, history of this. So then late, later, later, I see him chewing gum. He bet the river. You know, he kept chewing. The guy called and he showed a good hand. Saw three or four like that, right? So now I was in a big spot against him later. And, you know, he could be messing with me. He could be reversing. But, like, he said, this time, you know, I was close. I wasn't sure what to do. I looked over at him, and he stopped chewing his gum. So I said to myself, okay, well, I mean, unless he's leveling, last time he did that, you know, he was bluffing. So the key is to really look for anything outside the ordinary, right? People always try to say stoic or whatever, but they, they rarely don't give away something different, with, whether it's the stiffness of their hand, whether it's the, the spread of their fingers. I mean, you really just want to look for anything and then jot it down in your memory. What I do often is I'll take, say, for example, a player like Jake Schindler. I have access to a bunch of video of his. I'll watch all the video, and every time he splashes his chips in on the flop with, an, with his arm like this, I'll watch that and go, okay, you know, because it's on TV, he had a strong hand here, one strong. Then I see splashed again, okay, one weak. And then I look for tendencies. All right, so 80% of the time he splashed the pot, he had a weak hand or something like that. So I do, like, pretty intensive study um, in that regard, but really it's just as simple as kind of, like, spotting anything out of the ordinary or anything different than their norm when you're in pots and more importantly when you're not so that you can you know just build a database of knowledge against that person that's fantastic we had a question from uh, rick day who's one of our um, uh, rec poker community members in north carolina and he was his question more just kind of general hand ranging hand reading sort of uh, capability we, we've looked at a few different ways that people do this do you have any just general sort of frameworks or structures or processes that you'd recommend for rec players to just help us get better at narrowing our opponent's range? I know, again, yeah, that's a so, huge question too, but. No, it's a good question. So I in the masterclass, we kind of do this, where we start with a broad range and it starts to narrow. So for example, you know, player raises under the gun, okay? Well, have a sense of what hands can he have in this spot? What hands can he have? What hands can he don't? Well, he, he can't have jack six, we know that. So we have him on a range of, let's say, we know this guy's sixes plus, he might have seven, eight suited, nine, ten suited, all the big Broadway stuff like that, right? So now the flop comes out, and it's like ten, six, three, and he check raises the flop. All right, so what hands can he have now? Well, this guy doesn't bluff that much. So he doesn't have king queen anymore. He doesn't have this. So the range we started with, which included ace king, king queen, all that stuff, we can start to eliminate it. What do we have left? Pocket tens, eight, nine suited, maybe seven, eight suited, some gut shots. Maybe he's messing around. Maybe even ace ten, whatever the case may be. So. You start with a wider range, then with every action your opponent takes, you can start to eliminate hands, right? Or at least discredit some and saying, like, he's more likely to have this versus this or, or, you know, or something along those lines. 
Um, and then as you get to the river, you know, if you continue this process, you should be narrowed down to just like a very specific like bluff range versus um, calling range. Now, the way the GTO players do this, and it's a little more complicated, is they actually count the combinations. Okay. Right. So um, I did this example too, Amashka. So for example, let's say you think your opponent has, let's say you have two queens, right? That's your hand. And the player goes all in and you think he has aces, kings, or ace, king. That's all he would do it with, right? So how many combinations of cards could he have that beat you? And how many do you have beat? Can you do that one real quick? Well, he's got 16 ace, kings, then he's got uh, 12 aces and kings combined. Right. So if that's his range and you have two queens, well, 16 out of 28 times, you're in a coin flip, right? Yeah. So you win 50%. Now you got to figure out, okay, well, the other 12 times, I'm, I'm only 20%, right? But now you just relate, you know, you connect that to the pot size. So, um, you know, you basically, you know, a more, what do you call it? A, a, a evolutionary way of breaking down ranges is just counting the number of bluffs possible versus the number of value. Then you count the pot size on the river and go, okay, you know, he's got 40 bluffs and he's got 40 value. So it's even money and the pot's laying me two to one call. Right. Like if you don't have any other tails or anything like that, you just, uh, you count up the combos, and that's how a lot of the GTO players think and they play. Like, they'll actually just do the math, count the combos, count the pot they're being laid. Then they don't even care whether or not they think the person's bluffing. It's not like, hmm, I think that none of that matters. They just base it on, well, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is game theory says I'm supposed to call here. The great players, like a Bryn Kenny, too, who does this, he takes it to the next level where even in spots where, you know, the math says you're supposed to call, he just knows based on a physical tell or, you know, uh, the way in which this person's been playing, that it's just not a bluff. So he can make a mathematically incorrect play that's actually correct. Right. I love it. Yeah, thank you. We have another uh, one of our listeners, Ben, says, Hi, Daniel. Uh, if you find yourself at a final table, who wouldn't you want at that table? In a big tourney, heads up, who scares you the most? <laughs> well, I would, I would first I thought it was who wouldn't I want. I don't want anyone who plays really slow because I'm – Feel like I'm gonna want to slap them in the face every time they act. <laughs> like even if they're nice, I just want to wake them up and slap them. Um, <laughs> but in terms of you know, I'm really not a. I wouldn't say I'm afraid of anyone. There's some guys that I'd say don't have any read on. But you know, it's when you're playing at this kind of level, you kind of there's a lot of psychological warfare. You don't want to give your opponents this kind of free knowledge, right? So there's a couple guys who I don't have a read on. They play me pretty tough. But if I tell you. And then they hear it. Right. <laughs> you know, they sort of have this kind of psychological advantage that I want to give up. So just it's safe to say there's definitely – there's nobody I'm afraid of, but there's some guys that are obviously more difficult to play against than others. And typically – I'll just give you – so typically it's the guys who play uh, a much higher – more high-variant style yeah. where they're willing to just go for it, you know? Because, yeah, you can trap them when you get a good hand, but, man, <laughs> they take you on a ride, right? So you want to play your safe, secure game, and they're just ready to go, wee-hee! And, uh, you know, <laughs> you would jeopardy every time they're in a pot with you. Well, just, just the fact that you brought up heads up, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I don't know if you can separate this out, but obviously when you're heads up, you're playing for all the money. So that's obviously a great spot to be in. But just in general, like what's your most enjoyable part of a tournament? Uh, you know, if we can somehow strip aside the money, do you enjoy, you know, early stages in the tournament with a big field and you're kind of you getting to know everybody in that? Or is it when you get to the final table and kind of playing that full final table down as a heads up? Like, is there a part of a tournament that you – like actually emotionally enjoy more than others? Yeah, so I'm at a stage now where I've played so much poker that the early stages are like, come on, let's get this damn tournament started. Okay. Yep. So, you know, you're kind of like, okay, let's get it going. Having said that, 
if it's a big event like the Super High Roller Bowl, it's my favorite. It is it is exciting because it's very very deep stacked, which really plays well, you know, into my. It, 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 I think deep being deep is good for me. Um, and uh, but but ultimately, you know, the most fun part is when your juices are flowing. You know, your adrenaline's high. You, you know, you're down to like four or five handed for the title, and you know you're totally zoned in. And you know, you 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 basically. I, what I like to do is like in the early stages, I kind of put my brain on 70, 80% so that I have room to grow to the final table where now I'm like 99, 80, 100%. I'm giving it my all, focusing in on everything. So I, when, you get, when you get to playing a lot of tournaments, I think after a while, it's, it's the end game that's the most fun. Even though it's like a lot more like luck-based too because, you know, stacks are shallow. It's still fun right. though. Right, for sure. Another question I had was, was thinking about Man, I mean, obviously you've been playing forever and so your, your game has been growing forever, but I'm thinking about it from a recreational perspective. So you, I, I have this sort of visual of all of our games getting better, right? We first learn the game and then we gradually over time get better as we're learning things, as we're talking with things, as we're getting more experience. And so everything we learn sort of adds to that, our, our capability. But there are certain things that I'm, I guess I'm wondering from your perspective, are there certain, I guess, insights or knowledge that we gain where they're more like leaps in our growth or, or things that are as rec players, we should be paying attention to that are insights that are paradigms that are really going to grow our game more than other things. Does that make sense? Uh, I like, think so. Like I mean, I, think things, I, can... I guess these breakthrough insights, maybe it was in your mm-hmm. game, maybe it was somewhere else where it's like, okay, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm getting better. But then there is something that just sort of clicked that, incre- you know, that, that I guess advanced my game at a much higher level. I think that the biggest thing for a lot of rec players is this, right? So you get a hand, you're like, this is good. Flop is all right. You play your hand the way you play your hand, right? Because of based on the value of your hand. The epiphany really comes when you start to go, you know what? I got to play this hand different because I'm playing against this guy. So when you start to develop a game that isn't simply, oh, this is what I do with this hand. Well, no, this is what I do against, you know, this hand if I was against, you know, a robot or whatever. But what about against Joe? Well, against Joe, I'm going to push him around with it. Well, against Bob, he's on to me. He's seen me do this too many times, so i got to play careful. So being able to look past just simply saying to myself, well, this is, my, this is good. Good cards, good flop, yay right. me, right? To asking yourself, like, oh, against this guy? You know what he does? He loves to bluff a lot. So even though I have the nuts, and I usually would bet here, if I check, this guy bets more, so I'm going to check. This other guy, he doesn't bet enough. i got to make sure I get value and bet all three streets. So once you're able to you know, first and foremost, step one, understand the value of your hand, right? And the strength. Right. And then figure, start to think about the tendencies of your opponents and then go, what's a strategy that'll maximize my profit and cut my losses against every specific player? That's the big, I think, shift that needs to happen. Because I think the majority rec, like recreational, really low limit players, they're just, there's so much to it. They're just trying to figure out if they got a good hand or not. Right, for sure. Okay, good thoughts. Uh, anybody else with a question? Looking for the mute buttons. John Somsky. Yeah. Uh, so, Daniel, you're one of the players who kind of straddles the old school and the new school school world and, you know, grew up in the, the only time in history in which pokers were actually like rock stars. Uh, what do you think the poker industry has for us in the years to come? Are we going to get back to that type of um, – popularity with poker or uh, obviously the main event has continued to grow despite the black Friday and all of that. What are your thoughts for the future of the game? 
So no, I'm going to say quite simply, I don't think you'll ever see a boom like you did during the, you know, the rock star era. During that rock star era was the perfect storm. And you also had personalities that came from different walks of life. The Freddie Deebs, the Dave, Dave Devilfish Oliats, you know, you had like characters from different parts of the world. And today, for lack of a better term, it's nerdy, right? And it's a little slow. So the pace of play makes it more difficult to bring new people in because new people come to watch the game. They want to see excitement. They don't want to see a guy, you know, three minutes staring at the other guy. Like, okay, what the hell's going on here? This is boring, <laughs> right? So, you know, the hands seem taking too long. And, and also, I think that this younger generation has, for the most part, has shown very little interest in branding themselves for sponsorship deals. And I can't blame them because there's really not a lot available for them. You do see a push with Twitch streaming, very, very popular. A lot of people into that meetup games, YouTubers, vlogs, stuff like that. They're just, you know, cutting out their own genre as far as like super high roller tournaments and like, you know, that being kind of the focus of stardom. I mean, yeah, they are the stars of the game in a sense that they're the ones everyone aspires to be. But when you watch these broadcasts, there's not a lot of people that say, and I won't name names because I don't want to, you know, hit on anyone. Uh, it's like, oh, I'm a big fan of this guy. You know, there, there used to be people like, I love this Unabomber guy. You know, oh, Antonio the Magician. They had characters. There was something about them that was unique and, you know, they were more vocal or whether it was the package that ESPN put together. I don't think we'll ever see that again. I think poker's going to continue to have its niche as it always did. And, um, you know, it certainly appeals to like nerdy dudes. <laughs> and, uh, right. <laughs> I'm a nerd, by the way. I say that, but like, I'm an absolute nerd. Like, my wife's watched me all day, spending eight hours just dissecting my fantasy hockey team and like, <laughs> you know, creating new spreadsheets that just are silly, you know. And and so I understand nerdiness. I, I embrace it, but uh, I don't know that it plays as well for you know mainstream audiences. Good answer. So a, a couple of quick. I want to honor our time. We got about five minutes left. I want to honor our time. Uh, a couple of other que quick questions came in from our listeners. So Rob Adsum asked, who will win the Stanley Cup this season? And then Jack asked, will online poker come back in the U.S.? So online poker, depending where you are, is kind of making, you know, strides, right? Like if you're in Pennsylvania, if you're in Delaware, if you're in New Jersey or Las Vegas, you know, you've got um, regulated online poker. You do have some unregulated sites as well that are running. At the federal level, I wouldn't hold your breath, okay? Just don't see it being part of the uh, equation. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. You know, these governments, as we know, are not always that uh, <laughs> intelligent when it comes to, you know, obscure things like this. And frankly, they probably have bigger fish to fry. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, again, there's, there's going to be spots to play depending where you live, but at a federal level, I don't see it happen. Stanley Cup wise, and I know, okay, I live in Las Vegas, blah, blah, blah. But really, if you look at the path for Las Vegas right now, they're in the easiest division, the Pacific. They are really solid from top to bottom, and uh, I feel strongly about their chances to make it. Um, you know, on the other side, I grew up in Toronto, so obviously, you know, I was a Leaf fan, but uh, I still think that they uh, they have a couple pieces missing. They can score a lot of goals, but their players – see, the difference between Vegas, all Vegas players in the top nine or top level, they all play offense and defense. Toronto can score better than anybody, but the question is, do these young kids play defense like that? And I don't think the answer – is yes. So in the playoffs, things tighten up. I'm going to go, yeah, with the Vegas Golden Knights, baby. Nice. I love it. Serious. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll do one quick round if anybody has anything else. Otherwise, I have a quick quick thing to ask you, too. Now, now you're friends with Maria Ho, right? Yep. So now you have to tell her how great your experience was on the podcast because Maria and I had a moment in the World Series of Poker where she, she came to the table and she shoved like 17 bigs against my big blind. 
And I told her, I said, uh, if I fold, will you come on the podcast to talk about women in poker? She said, yes, but I haven't seen her yet. I folded my ace 10 to her. So you need to talk to her about that. <laughs> so, no, well, I kidding. spoke to her today. She texted oh, you me did. today. She, she yeah. did tell me on Twitter. She said she's going to come on the show. But, you know, if I could have you apply a little pressure, that might help. But uh, yeah. we, she didn't mention that she, she's dodging you. I, I imagine. No, I imagine that wasn't the top of her list. No, we did. We did a nine, a nine uh, series episode on women in poker. And so uh, I would love to get her perspective on that because I thought it was a fascinating uh, series. Uh, anything else from the from the panelists before we let Daniel go? I got opinions on women in poker. Well, let's do it. All right. Well, if you want to take some time, I'd love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts for sure. Well, just real quickly, obviously I have a lot of female friends in poker yeah. and ever since I started, you know, tournaments represented anywhere from four to 7% women. It's never really, it's, you know, gone up and down marginally and it just always has kind of sort of been that. Right. And I think there's a lot of talk and question, you know, this question I ask people all the time, like, what do you think it would take to get more women poker just for fun? Because like everyone has these theories or whatever. And I think it's mostly kind of silly, really. I do, because I think, like, if you look at other, you know, industries, they don't do this. So romance novels, right? 96% of sales of romance novel books go to women, right? But we're not saying, as a, you know, they're not saying, like, what do, we, what do we do to get more men into romance novels? It just so happens that women prefer them, you know? They just like them better. And I think with poker, it is a endeavor that is, you know, men are typically more drawn to, for whatever reason, you can hypothesize. Um, and, uh, you know, you could talk about the pay inequality gap, a lot of different reasons. But overall, I just think that it's a case of like, well, you know, when you're when kids are kids, like, you know, boys play with guns and toys and play and women, girls play with dolls. That's not universally true, of course. But, you know, it lends itself towards certain types of uh, behaviors and desires. And it just I don't think that there's going to I don't think there's anything like, oh, look at that. There was a girl in a bikini. That means women are not going to play poker anymore. I think that's kind of silly. The women who actually choose to play poker for the most part, they're there to make money. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they don't care about what the heck you're wearing or whatever. Like, you know, they're just, they're there to make you take your money. They don't care if you call them honey, as long as you're shipping them a pot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's good. I mean, that was one of our, the first question we asked was, is, is this a problem? And there were different perspectives on that uh, because that's kind of our first, we didn't want to make that assumption uh, because people do have different, different ideas on if it's, if it's a problem or not. And then if it is, you know, how do we, how do we overcome those hurdles? And when they figure that out, you know, whoever does, to go to the romance novel industry and figure out why more men are not buying these books. I'm sure there's people working on that. I bet there's people yeah. working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Rob, John, Steve, Andrew, anything else that you want to ask? Or Steve O's on there somewhere too. Anything else you want to ask Daniel or should we let him go? John Somsky. I just want to say uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, it, you've passed my wife knows your name test. That's the, uh, you know, <laughs> how famous of a po uh, guest we have on is whether or not she knows you. And of course, well, everyone that's good knows to know. <laughs> I'll, I'll so, call that an honor. And, and Daniel, you should know that John Sonsky is widely referred uh, in Minnesota and beyond as the nicest guy in poker. So uh, of all the things that you've accomplished, you've not accomplished that. So John Sonsky is the guy oh, to know. Boy, but you know, sometimes they call the nice guy, they call him nice for a reason because he loses a lot of money. No, no. <laughs> I don't know why they call him nice because he three bets me all the time. I'm not sure why they call him nice, but <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll nice let you go to everyone there. except he, for Steve. <laughs> what was that, John? Go ahead. I'm nice to everyone except for Steve. It might feel that way. It does kind of feel that way. <laughs> well, Daniel, I guess any, uh, any parting words of wisdom for, from you to uh, those of us who are out here just sort of uh, hobbyists trying to learn the game? Yeah. You know what? Enjoy it, right? The game's supposed to be fun. Um, I always say, you know, depending on where your skill level is, if you want to get a group of guys together that 
want to have an enjoyable time, you do that. And you do that in such a way where you give a little action, you get a little action, right? If a guy's losing, and whatever you're saying, if a guy's losing all his money, he's getting killed. And he goes, guys, everyone, let's throw a hundred bucks in and just do a flip. Don't be that guy who's like, well, you know, it's uh, not positive EV. Da, da, da. You got to have a little fun with the game, make it enjoyable. Um, and in the meantime, you're probably going to be able to make some more money that way as well. But you do it with a smile, making sure and everyone's, you know, I think that's a little bit of a lost art. And I think, you know, the recreational player community can sort of revive that. And that's the idea of guys, it's supposed to be fun first. You know, if you want a job, so I don't know, McDonald's is hiring, but like get out of this game. <laughs> Love it. Well, th- thanks for your time. Good luck with everything out there and, uh, and enjoy Vegas to the extent and hopefully your, your Vegas Golden Knights can bring it home. I think I'm feeling good about it. Thanks, right. man. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Yeah. Later. Yep. All right. Well, Dan, you can feel free to, to log off there. Anybody else can feel free to log off. We'll just kind of have some, some post-conversation breakdown. Any, anything stand out from you guys? Just uh, obviously one of the all-time greats. So it's kind of fun to actually be able to chat with him. I think uh, John is going to lose his title as the nicest person in poker because Daniel was really engaging and just really fun to talk to. Yeah, for sure. He just has, he has an energy that I just, I I wish I had. Well, and that's one thing that he's a great ambassador to poker too, because uh, every time, if you guys have ever watched any of his vlogs, when he does the world series of poker, he never says no to anybody when he want they want a picture or anything for all Rex railing them. It's just, it's just crazy how, how, how generous he is with his time on that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know when he has time to actually look for all of those tells because he's busy (laughs) signing autographs on the rail all the time. (laughs) Well, even coming on here, right? I mean, I I mean, how many requests does he get? Yeah. I I think Rob, I'm, I'm, I mean, if you want to formally start a petition to replace John Somsky as the nicest guy in poker, I will sign that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the only thing I have to say is you can't, um, include personality into this. I, I mean, so he definitely has a better personality than I do. <laughs> no. it, it just, we have what? to be, define it very narrowly in order for me to even have a shot here. It, it's, it's not, it's not better, John. I think, I think I, he's got a great personality, but it can be exhausting too, right? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought that was, I thought that was really fun. Obviously, I mean, I've got a ton more questions. I know some of you guys had more questions too. We could have spent all day with him and it just flew by, but uh, I thought it was very, very interesting. I thought there's some good insights too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of the things he was saying is stuff that we've been talking about um, and insights that we've been getting. I thought it was interesting. He talked about uh, you don't need to study GTO. Yeah, I was just bringing that up, yeah. You just needed to be exploited, but how do you know how to be exploited if you don't know GTO to start with? Right. Right. Because he seemed to have a pretty good grounding on that, knowing that, well, I should be betting this amount of time or raising or call whatever. And so I see that this guy is not, so I'm going to exploit that. Well, how do you know he's not if you don't know what it is <laughs> right. to begin with? Right. And even some of the shove fold stuff is predicated on GTO. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking he's just trying to make sure people don't get bogged down by the numbers because if it is something brand new – that is a very daunting task to look at all of the GTO stuff. For sure. Yep. For sure. All right. Well, good stuff guys. Anything, any other final comments at all? 
All right. Thanks for jumping on here. That was fun. Hopefully we can, uh, <laughs> we'll apply the pressure to get Marie on, but maybe, maybe Daniel will come back on who knows. Uh, but either way, I think, uh, it's just one of those opportunities to enjoy some time with one of the greats. A lot of fun. Yeah. That was a good, good stuff guys. All right. We'll let you go. Thanks. Right, Steve. Have, have, have a good night. Thanks everybody. Ben, Jack, Rick day, Rob Adsum. Thanks for jumping on there. Appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks to Daniel Negranu. Thanks to our panelists. Thanks to those who joined uh, as attendees at the video conference, our Rec Poker community members. Uh, that was super fun, super fantastic. Uh, special thanks really to Daniel for taking the time. He doesn't need to do that, but he's part of uh, being an ambassador for the game and championing the game. Uh, and we felt his energy and it was super fun to have him on the show. Hopefully we'll have him back. Uh, otherwise, we'll just try to connect at some other time. But that was fantastic. Thank you to Daniel. Thank you to everybody else. Uh, just a reminder, some of the stuff that we have going on, I mentioned it at the beginning. Um, on Wednesday, uh, October 2nd, 6.30 p.m., Hand History, led by Chris Jones, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time, our Poker Stars online tournament, Come and Dethrone Taylor Moss, who's the reigning champion. October 7th, 6.30 p.m., interviewing Ryan LaPlante on the podcast. October 9th, 4 o'clock, open video hours, open conversation geared toward beginning Texas Hold'em players. Also on October 9th at 6.30, we'll be doing our third session, Chapter 3 of the Andrew Brokus book. And on October 9th at 8 o'clock p.m., more hand histories, this time led by Taylor Moss. And then finally, October 10th at 8.30 p.m., our community kickoff, a video conference uh, where we're just hanging out, getting to know each other, chatting with members of the Rec Poker community. Uh, so hopefully we didn't miss anything there. You can always plug in by email, Twitter, get on our email distribution list, Facebook, uh, check out all of our blog posts out at rec.poker. Many ways to stay plugged in. Um, also, I want to make sure that we thank Running Aces Racetrack and Casino, who's been our sponsor since the beginning of this thing back in 2017. So thanks, everybody. Have a great week on and off the felt. And I hope all goes well for you. And we will check in next week.